Heavenly Father, we do commit this time to you. Lord, we thank you for the word of God. Lord, we thank you for the bread that has come from heaven that we can partake of it. That, Lord, in Jesus we have life and forgiveness. We have health and hope. We have freedom and restoration. Lord, you've given us all things that pertain to life and godliness and the knowledge of the Savior. And Heavenly Father, I pray in particular for that person who is here this morning. Who is empty. Who is hungry. Who finds a great void in their life and desperately needs to fill it. Lord, we know that no one comes to you unless they're drawn by the Holy Spirit. And so, Heavenly Father, we invite the Spirit of God to anoint the Word of God. And we pray that the servant of God would speak faithfully and truthfully. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 30, it says, Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. Jesus has made extraordinary claims. The true work of God was to believe in him. Remember in verse 29 where we left off, Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you should believe in him whom he has sent. Jesus is claiming to be Israel's Messiah. Jesus is claiming to be the fulfillment of the promise that was given to Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. To Noah before the flood. To Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. To Judah and David. Jesus claims to be the full and final fulfillment of all of the promises that have been made in God concerning what it means to be truly delivered from, our, from the problem of sin. And the people's response, prove it. We want messianic credentials. Certainly, Jesus has turned water into wine. Jesus has healed the nobleman's son. Jesus has fed over 5,000, and the feeding of the 5,000 is still fresh in their minds and certainly in their stomachs. When I was growing up in the 1960s, there was a famous song by the Rolling Stones. The song was Satisfaction. I can't get no satisfaction. 
But the rolling stones didn't make up the emptiness inside of the human heart. C.S. Lewis wrote, I cannot find a cup of tea which is big enough or a book that is long enough. The thing about bread is you are hungry the very next day. We, of course, know what the word satisfy means. It means to appease desire or longing. Satisfy means to appease needs or requirements. And Jesus claims to be the bread, the substance that satisfies man's greatest hunger, that inner aching, the constant craving, the inner emptiness that demands to be filled. Jesus is the bread that came down from heaven, the bread of God, the bread of life. By the way, bread is a staple around the world. It's what most people live on, and bread gives life. And think about the analogy here for just a moment. Bread gives life by nourishing and sustaining, by satisfying and energizing, but it has one drawback. Eating bread creates the desire eventually for more bread. It has to be eaten on a regular basis. And oddly enough, Jesus does exactly the same thing. Jesus gives life to the believer. Jesus nourishes and sustains the believer. Jesus satisfies and energizes the believer. But the reality is when you partake of Christ, when you walk with Christ, He creates within you a desire for more and more and more of Jesus. Read the label on the last loaf of bread you bought. More than likely, you'll discover that it has been vitamized. I don't even know if that's a a word. Fortified. Pulverized. My son Miguel also assures me that, that almost certainly it's also been genetically altered. The point? Bread isn't the simple thing it once was. But how can you improve on the bread of life? More than that, it's unique. You can make physical bread from wheat, from flour, from rye, from rice, from barley, from corn, even from potatoes. But bread for the soul, bread for the soul can only come from one source. It can only come from Jesus. There is no bread that comes from any other source that can permanently satisfy And so, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And look in verse 30. The people demand proof. In verse 30, it says, Therefore they said to him, to Jesus, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Now, years later, Paul would write to the believers in Corinth. He would say, The Jews require a sign in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22. John Calvin wrote, This wicked question clearly shows the truth of what is said elsewhere. A wicked and an adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign in Matthew chapter 12, verse 39. Here's the reality. Unbelief is rarely satiated with the evidence. And so the reality comes even in our own lives and in our own hearts as your family, your friends, your mother, your father, your husband, your wife, your children. They ask the question, if you're really there, prove it. Show me a sign. Give me a sign. 
Like I said, unbelief is rarely satiated or, or satisfied with evidence. In Luke chapter 16, verse 31, it says that those who reject the truth of God's word wouldn't be persuaded even if someone rose from the dead. When Jesus hung on the cross, the skeptics and the religious leaders let loose with a barrage of curses, mocking and saying, let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. It says in Mark chapter 15, verse 32, their seeing and their believing is to thwart and undermine the plan of God and the mission of God and the purpose of God to save you. And so what are they looking for? A miracle. When Jesus performs the greatest miracle, dying for our sins, defeating death, rising from the dead, rather than admit the truth of the resurrection, the religious leaders and the religious skeptics will make a failed attempt to cover up the reality of the resurrection. You want evidence? Does 300 prophecies concerning the birth, the life, the message, the ministry, the resurrection of Jesus, does that count as evidence? Being born of a virgin, does that count as evidence? Saying the most remarkable things that have ever been said, does that count as evidence? Opening blind eyes and deaf ears, does that count as evidence? Stilling the storm, does that count as evidence? Raising people from the dead, does that count as evidence? An empty tomb, does that count as evidence? But they won't believe. They won't believe. The rationalist Oswald Chambers wrote, demands an explanation for everything. He writes, the reason people won't have anything to do with God is because they cannot define him. If you cannot define God, then you think that you're greater than God. If you can define love, if you can define life, then you're greater than love and life. Oswald Chambers writes again, quote, When a rationalist, this is an unbeliever, points out sin and iniquity and disease and death and says, How does God have an answer for that? You can always give the fathomless answer. The cross Christ. This is where love meets. This is where forgiveness meets. This is where the answer comes from. Horatius Bonner wrote, in all unbelief there are these two things. A good opinion of yourself and a bad opinion of God. That's what unbelief really is. It's a bad opinion of God. You simply don't believe what he says is true. You simply don't believe that the Bible is true. You simply reject it. But in rejecting what the Bible says, you embrace what you hear and you embrace what you see. I've never seen God. God's never done anything for me. Oh, foolish person. You wouldn't be here if it weren't for God. And in John chapter 6, verse 31, look what it says. Our fathers ate the manna in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. You know what they're doing? They're quoting the Bible. Hey, look, we're religious people. We can quote the Bible. Our fathers ate the manna in the desert as it is written. Where is it written? In Psalm 78, 24, it says, Had rained down manna on them to eat and given them of the bread of heaven. 
the people had always remembered the manna as the wonder bread of the Old Testament. Remember, they were dying in the wilderness and the Lord said, I'm going to rain down bread from heaven and six days a week bread came. Rain or shine, bread came. Think carefully. What are these people asking for? They're asking for a miracle. They're asking for bread to put in their mouths, but not in their hearts. And that's the challenge. Lord, I want a miracle. I want my son or my daughter to be healed. Lord, I want a miracle. I, my father's ill. By the way, my father really is ill. He's was taken into the hospital on Sunday. He was diagnosed with liver cancer. The, the biopsy came back. And the doctor has basically said, unless my father elects for some course of treatment, he's going to die. I want my rent paid. I want my mouth fed. I want my bills paid. And again, 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 that's not necessarily a wrong thing to want any and all of those things. What becomes wrong is you want a substitute for a real relationship with God by having Jesus in your life. The rabbis taught that the Messiah would duplicate the miracle of Moses by providing manna from heaven. In their way of thinking, if Jesus is truly sent by God, let him prove it by causing manna to rain down from heaven. And sometimes we're in exactly the same situation. God, if you're real, then I want you to prove it to me. And again, for the people listening to Jesus, seeing is believing. But we know that the New Testament doesn't teach that seeing is believing. The New Testament teach, teaches that believing is seeing. When you will believe Jesus and receive Jesus, then guess what? Your life will be opened up to you. We know also that faith based on miracles and faith based on signs alone and not the truth of the word of God can lead people astray. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, it says, For even Satan is able to perform lying wonders. And so this strong rabbinic belief was pounded into the heads of the people that when the Messiah came, he too would bring bread from heaven. In their mind, Moses had two great works that he performed. The first great work that he performed was the reception of the law by God. The second great work that Moses performed was the giving of the manna. And so in their way of thinking, Moses fed the people day after day. Week after week, month after month, year after year. There was an ancient rabbinic tradition that went this way, and I'm going to quote it to you. Quote, as was the first redeemer, so was the final redeemer. As the, final re as the first redeemer caused the manna to fall from heaven, even so shall the second redeemer cause the manna to fall. And quote, for whom has the manna been prepared? For the righteous in the age that is coming. Everyone who believes is worthy and eats it, unquote. One very famous Bible scholar, Barclay, writes, and I quote, It was the belief that a pot of the manna had been hidden in the ark in the first temple, and that when the temple was destroyed, Jeremiah the prophet had hidden it away, and he would produce it again when the Messiah came. 
In other words, the Jews were challenging Jesus to produce bread from God in order to substantiate his claim. They did not regard the bread which had fed the 5,000 as bread from God. It had begun in earthly loaves. It had issued in earthly loaves. The manna they held was an entirely different test altogether. Unquote. Same is true today. That was then. This is now. You say a virgin birth, but virgins don't have babies. You say that he said these things, but how can you know that the Bible is really true? And how do you know that when Jesus was praying for people, it wasn't just some psychosomatic illness that in the religious fervor of it all, the people just got ignited with a sense of hope and pretended to be healed? A leper pretending to be healed? A man with no eyes and just sockets pretending to be healed? A woman with an issue of blood pretending to be healed? A child who is dead, pretending to come back to life? A man in a tomb for four days, pretending to be dead? But here's the point. The point that Jesus gives. What are you willing to accept as evidence that Jesus is Lord? And the answer that Jesus gives, he points out two problems. Number one, Moses didn't give them the manna from heaven. And number two, it was God who gave them the manna. In other words, the manna is a type, a symbol of the true bread from heaven. Jesus makes another extraordinary claim. The bread of God is he who came down from heaven. The bread that comes down from heaven is a Person. It's not a religious philosophy. It's not a church that you go to. It's not a religious construct that you embrace. Jesus makes the extraordinary claim, the bread of God is he who came down from heaven and gave human beings not just simply temporary satisfaction, but eternal satisfaction. Forgiveness, salvation, redemption, Jesus is claiming to be the only true, real, permanent satisfaction. And we see the source of satisfaction. Look at verse 32. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. There's that phrase again. We've seen it in John's Gospel before. Most assuredly. What does it mean? Remember what I've told you? Truly, truly, verily, verily, amen, amen. What does it mean? It means listen carefully because what I'm about to say to you is true. And remember what I've said. Does that mean that everything Jesus has said before is false? No. He's drawing particular attention to something because he wants you to get it. And if you're wondering why I'm drawing particular attention to it, it's because I want you to get it. Look what it says. Moses did not give you the bread from heaven. In Exodus chapter 16, verse 4, and I quote, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. Unquote. Moses merely relayed the message of God's instructions. 
on how to gather the bread. By the way, the instructions are found in Exodus chapter 16, beginning in verse 15, as he lays out how to gather the bread. Second, Jesus says, my father gives. I want to draw special attention to that verb, gives. It's the Greek word, dido me. It's in the present tense, indicating the true bread was not the manna of the past, but what the Father in the here and the now is currently giving. Next, Jesus uses the adjective true. It's the Greek word alithinos. It means genuine as opposed to fake. It means real as opposed to not real, meaning that the manna was real food. Certainly it was real food. The manna could be picked up. It could be put in your mouth. It could be swallowed. It could go down into your stomach. It could be absorbed through your colon. And then, well, you can figure out where it will go. But it was temporary. It was physical and temporary, and you had to have a daily provision. The manna provided temporary sustenance. It was a daily form of nourishment. They had to eat it over and over and over and over again to sustain life. Jesus says, the true bread is from heaven. And look what it says in verse 33. Jesus, the true bread. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The expression, he who comes down from heaven, will appear six more times in this chapter. And the reason why it's going to appear seven times in the chapter is because, again, Jesus is emphasizing something. That he came from heaven. His source, his origin is from heaven. And the origin of the true bread is God himself. The substance is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The bread comes from, listen carefully, not from a physical dimension, but from a from a spiritual dimension, from the very presence of God. Think carefully what Jesus is saying. This bread came from God's house and God's table. The ancients had a belief of, a, of wine and food that the gods could bring to, to, to humanity. And what Jesus is saying, that the bread from God's table and the bread from God's house has come and the bread of God is therefore not physical but eternal and spiritual. The bread of God is possessed by God. And because the bread of life and the bread of God is possessed by God, only God can give it. You can't go to King Supers to the bakery and get the bread of life. You can't fabricate it in a factory. You can't go to a Jewish deli and purchase it in the form of bagels. You can't get it in Mexico in the form of tortillas. And you can't get it in the Middle East in the form of falafels. It comes from God. And because it comes from God, only He can give it. And man cannot have this bread. Listen carefully. Human 
beings cannot have this bread unless God gives it. And the bread is a person. He. And the word bread, ho, artos. In the original language, in the Greek language, this is a masculine expression. In other words, the object of this bread is Jesus. The bread wasn't, listen carefully, the bread wasn't born on the earth. The bread wasn't raised on the earth. The bread wasn't nourished on the earth. The bread came from the very presence of God. The purpose of the bread was to impart life. That's what it says. This is the bread of life. And to give life to the world. Not just to the Jewish world. Not just to the black world. Not just to the white world. But to the whole world. And the word John uses for life is zoe. Now there's two words that are used in the Greek New Testament for life. The first is bios. We get the word biology from that. It, it speaks of animated life. But the second is zoe. And that word is a different word. It's the word that describes the quality and the essence of life, the energy and the power of life, the force and the principle of life. Jesus Christ is life. He is the quality of life. He is the essence of life. He is the energy of life. He is the power of life. He is The purpose of life. He is the significance of life. And so the idea is to possess this life and then to possess it perfectly produces joy and satisfaction and peace and goodness and meekness and self-control and all of the things that are described in the New Testament as the fruit of the Spirit. Listen carefully. Whatever life is... And whatever life is all about, it finds its ultimate meaning and expression in Jesus. Jesus is the source of life, the way to life, the truth of life. And look what it says in verse 34. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. Can you imagine? Look carefully. They address Jesus as Lord. The word is kurios. It's sometimes used as an indication of deity. But sometimes it's just simply a title of respect. Do you think that they understand that Jesus is God? I don't. Are they, in, with respect, being respectful towards Jesus? I think that they are. There's a lot of people who have a deep respect, a profound respect for Jesus. But they don't really believe that he's God. They don't really believe that he's the Lord. They don't really believe that he came from heaven. They don't really believe that all things that exist, exist because of him. They don't really believe that the universe was created for him and by him. They don't really believe that the earth was created for him and by him. They don't really believe that every human being, every man and every woman who exists on the planet exists because Jesus brought you here. They don't really believe that. They don't really understand that. In the original language, the passage reads, Evermore, give us this bread. That's 
Tan, to, te, dos, er, rim, ton, arton, tau, ton. Language specialists call this the Greek aorist tense. The people want this bread of God once for all so that they might have a permanent provision. They're thinking that Jesus is suggesting that he's going to give them a tablet. And once the tablet is taken, they will never experience hunger ever again. Can you imagine having a food stamp like that? You lick the stamp. And you never have to eat ever again. You're always satisfied. You're forever full. In effect, they're saying, give us bread. Bread that lasts forever. Bread that banishes hunger. Bread that provides fuel forever. And remember what I said to you last week? That if Jesus came simply to feed the hungry and to eliminate world hunger, then he failed miserably. The next time you go to buy a used car, you can say to the person, what will it take for you to buy this car for me today? And you can say, if you can completely eliminate world hunger and completely eliminate the threat of nuclear destruction, I will buy this car from you today. And they'll go, no, 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 really. And you can go, no, really. Certainly, receiving Jesus in salvation, partaking of the bread of life, is an an initial event that has a permanent result, salvation. When you receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, when you receive Him and believe Him, and your mind is changed, and your thoughts are changed, and your words are changed, and your life is changed, you're saved. Permanently. Forever. But look what it says in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. What are you saying, Jesus? Do we pulverize you? Do we grind you into little bits? Is Jesus suggesting cannibalism? It was prohibited in the the Bible. In the Gospel of John, there are seven great I Am statements. Here is the first in verse 35. I'm the bread of life. In John 8, 12, he'll say, I'm the light of the world. In John 10, 7, I'm the door of the sheep. In John 10, 11, I'm the good shepherd. In John 11, 25, I'm the resurrection and the life. In John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. In John 15, 1, I'm the true vine. The Lord God revealed himself to Moses from a burning bush, and he said, I am. Remember, Moses said, tell me who I should say is sending me. And he said, tell him I am sent you, the self-existent God. When Jesus uses the expression, I am, I strongly suspect that he's asserting his deity. I am the bread of life. So what does Jesus mean when he says that? Is this poetry? Is this metaphor? Is this what Roman Catholicism teaches? That Jesus transforms into bread and wine in a Catholic Mass? Again, the answer is found in this chapter. If you fast forward to verse 63 in the chapter, look what it says. In verse 63 it says, 
It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are Spirit, and they are life. It's the Word of God. By the way, in the ancient world as well as the modern world, bread certainly is the fundamental food product for humanity. Bread is what sustains life. Without bread, life can't go forward. So does Jesus simply mean that he is physical life? I don't think so because life is more than just mere physical existence. Life is more than just simply surviving day to day. So what is Jesus suggesting? What is the nature of spiritual life? Real life is real friendship and real relationship with God in an ongoing fellowship of trust and obedience and love. That relationship and fellowship is possible only through Jesus Christ. Again, a Bible writer quotes and says, that is to say, without Jesus... There may be existence, but not life. Therefore, if Jesus is the essential of life, he may be described as the bread of life. The hunger of the human situation is ended when we know Christ and through him know God. The restless soul is at rest. The hungry heart is satisfied. Unquote. Isn't that good? That's what Jesus is suggesting. And note note what Jesus says. He who comes to me, he who believes in me, the idea when we come to Jesus, we see him. But we don't see him simply on the pages of the New Testament. We see him in the teachings of the New Testament and in the teachings of the church and we come face to face with Him. We see Him and we come to Him, not simply as some historical figure kept alive by wishful thinking, but someone who is real and someone who is alive and someone who is accessible. We believe in Him and we believe that He's the final authority concerning God, concerning man, concerning sin, concerning life, concerning heaven, concerning hell, concerning what the future holds. That means our coming to Him isn't in a mere curious encounter or some intellectual adventure, but a life-changing moment of surrender. We repent of our sin. We abandon our sin. We embrace the promise of Jesus to forgive us. We surrender our heart. We surrender our affection. We surrender our claim in our own life. We purpose to know Him and follow Him and obey Him. And we're given life. Real life. Eternal life. Friendship that never ceases. And the friendship is through Jesus Christ alone. There's no searching of the human mind. There's no longing of the human heart that can bring you to God apart from Jesus Christ. 
And so God gives the human heart the desire to awaken, to take away the rebellion and the pride that hinders submission. We would never be able to seek him unless he found us to begin with. And there remains that stubborn something which enables us to refuse the offer of God. Again, Barclay writes, and I quote, in the last analysis, the one thing which defeats God is the defiance of the human heart. Life is there for the taking. Or for the refusing. Jesus is there if you want him. And Jesus won't be there if you refuse him. Scholars and Bible teachers alike have pointed out the similarities between manna and Jesus. The manna was like snow. Pure. Without spot or or blemish or imperfection. It tasted like honey in your mouth. And you know what was the most notable characteristic of manna? It's accessibility. You didn't have to climb a mountain in order to get it. You didn't have to crawl into a hole in order to get it. All you had to do was walk outside your tent, and there it was. You could pick it up off the ground, or you could step in, step on it. And it's exactly the same today. Jesus is accessible. You don't have to climb a mountain to find Jesus. You don't have to crawl into a hole to find Jesus. The Bible says that He's not far from each and every one of us. Every single one of us, when you wake up in the morning, Jesus is there. The Holy Spirit is inviting you, compelling you, speaking to you, calling to you. And that was perhaps the greatest virtue. All you had to do was pick it up. And look what the source, seen and spurned in verse 36, look what it says, but look what Jesus says. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. Do you remember what happened earlier in John chapter 4 when Jesus met the woman at the well? Remember when he offered her living water? And she said, give me this water so I never have to come to the well ever again. And remember what Jesus said? That he's the living water. And that he would become a spring inside of her. Living water, satisfying the thirst. The crowd wanted bread. But they wanted a kind of bread that would satisfy them forever. They wanted bread so that they wouldn't have to work, so that they wouldn't have to toil. They wanted a type of a bread so that they would never, ever, ever have to feed themselves ever again. They've seen Jesus, the bread of life that came down from heaven, the bread of life that was given to the world. The bread of life was seen. The bread of life was proclaimed, but they didn't believe him. The Bible says in the New Testament that they're lost. That's what it says in Luke 19.10. They're condemned, it says in John 3.18. They're under God's wrath, it says in John 3.36. They're dead in trespasses and sins, it says in Ephesians 2.1. Having no hope without God in the world, it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. Don't live under the illusion that those people who are walking in rebellion and unbelief are fine because they're not fine. 
just like you weren't fine before you came to Christ. There was an emptiness. There was a hole. There was a void. There was guilt. There was condemnation. And the people are without excuse. Any of the people sitting there, any of the people listening to Jesus could have believed Him. But most didn't. Just like now. The people who get up and turn on the TV, the people who get up and turn on the radio, the people who go to the library and they open up their Bible, the people who listen to you, your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your next door neighbor, those people that you talk to, those people that you pray with, and those people that you pray for, those people who you are constantly, constantly reminding them that the Bible is true, that the message of hope is true, that the message of forgiveness is true, that you can receive Jesus and believe Jesus that it's true, they still won't believe. So here's the question. Did Jesus fail to give enough evidence? Were the 300 prophecies concerning his first coming, not to mention his second coming, that wasn't enough? The virgin birth, not enough? Water into wine, not enough? Healing the nobleman's son, not enough? Cleansing the leper, not enough. Blind eyes, deaf ears, not enough. Lazarus back from the dead, not enough. He himself comes back from the dead, not enough. The Bible makes the extraordinary claim. A person is saved by coming to Christ and by believing in Christ. That's what it says in verse 35. It's continuous action, by the way. It means you believe and you continue to believe. You believe. You believed yesterday and you believe today and you believe tomorrow. The person will never hunger. The person will never thirst. Nothing is left out. Nothing is left lacking. Does this mean that the person will never hunger physically or, or, or even hunger for and thirst for righteousness, of course not. But the hunger and the thirst will be satisfied and quenched. That's the meaning. What if there's an emptiness inside of me, a longing still? Jesus will meet that longing. He will satisfy you. Saving faith, believing faith, doesn't simply acknowledge the facts about Jesus, the history concerning Jesus, or the mental conviction that Jesus is who He says He is, but it, it means believing the words of Jesus, the claims of Jesus, and then giving your life, casting your confidence, committing yourself, and it's a permanent commitment. You don't believe today and question tomorrow. The man who trusts Jesus trusts him to take care of the past, the present, the future. The person who entrusts Jesus with their whole life. You entrust Jesus with your possession. You entrust Jesus with everything. The person who is saved, the man or the woman who lays everything about Jesus, confides in Jesus, seeks Jesus, relies on Jesus daily for necessities and the details of life. The person who repents of sin and turns and follows Jesus in a lifestyle of commitment, personal commitment to the truth, experiences 
satisfaction. The truth becomes a part of your being. The truth becomes a part of your behavior. The truth becomes a part of your life. And you know what? They're not going to get it. They're going to misunderstand almost everything that Jesus says. And when we come to the end of the chapter, most of them will walk away. Sadly, tragically, some of you will also. Some of you will get up out of your seat, you'll go through those doors, you'll exit, you'll go into the parking lot, you'll get into your car, and you'll live your life as if what Jesus said didn't Some of you will believe Him. Some of you will embrace Him. Some of you will live for Him and love Him and serve Him. And tomorrow will be like today. And next week will be like today. And next year will be like today. Until you find yourself in a quiet place, in a dark room, with a lonely pillow, And you lay your head on that pillow and you embrace the sweet sleep of surrender that will spell the ticket for reunion and reconciliation to God forever. You want to know why? Because eternal life doesn't begin the day you die. Eternal life began the moment that you received Him and believed Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for that person who is here who find themselves strangely, strangely apart from You. Lord, they've heard the words. It's as simple as simply believing and receiving that the Word is true. And Lord, I pray. I pray, I pray the prayer that I know is true. You said that no one comes to You unless they're drawn by the Holy Spirit of God. No matter how good the music is and no matter how clear the message is, there are those people, Lord, that I know won't get it. And so, Lord, I pray for that person who does get it. Lord, I pray for that person whose heart has been convicted, for the person whose heart is pounding And the reoccurring message is, I know that Jesus Christ is real. I know that He's the Lord. I know that He died on the cross for my sins. I know that He rose from the dead, but I'm not living for Him. I'm not acting like a person who really believes that that's true. Lord, I pray for that person. Lord, I pray that they would embrace You and receive You. That they would do more than believe. That they would receive and that they would walk in that. Is that you? Do you need to have a right relationship with God and you don't? Just acknowledge it before Him. Place your hand up in the air. I'll pray for you. Show God physically with your hand. Demonstrate what's going on inside of your heart and say, I want to know Him and I want to love Him and I want to walk with Him. Not in rebellion and disobedience, but in happiness and reunion and real relationship. Is that you? 
trust from your response that every single person here has a right relationship with God and Christ. And I thank God for that. But Lord, I pray, you who search the heart, you who know the truth, you who divides the darkness from the light and death from life, Lord, you know the true circumstances of their life. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to them. Pray that you would encourage them. Lord, we find sustenance, energy, nourishment, hope in our true and faithful Savior, Jesus. Amen. Let's stand.